think it was, it was uh, Linus Van Pelt holding his security bank blanket and still sucking his thumb when he said to Charlie Brown, you're the only person who can take a perfectly wonderful season like Christmas and ruin it, turn it into a problem. Now, Linus was known for some pearls of wisdom, but I don't think he got this one right. I don't think Charlie Brown was the only one who struggled with Christmas. In fact, many people do. Part of, part of that comes with some of the overblown expectations around an idyllic family gathering that uh, is to take place. But it's easy at Christmas to feel isolated, to feel maybe like people don't care, sometimes even to feel like God doesn't care. All month, we've been in a series called Christmas Hope, and we've been looking at uh, a prophecy that was given to the nation of Israel in a time of darkness in their lives. It was a prophecy that was to point them forward to what we now enjoy and celebrate as Christmas. This morning, I'd like to look at a passage of the Bible that gives us hope when it seems like no one cares, when we've are entering into Christmas and not feeling some of the, uh, the joy and the hopefulness that uh, we might otherwise have. Uh, to do that, I want to uh, uh, look at a passage of Scripture. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. Uh, it is the last section, in one sense, the climax of this chapter that we've been studying all through uh, the month of December. Uh, Chapter 40, verses 27 to 31. Chapter 40, verses 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall, be, shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of God. Now, we've been saying that this was written to the nation of Israel at a time when they felt abandoned. Uh, They sat in exile in Babylon, and they were a defeated people. They looked at their circumstances and said, it feels like God has forgotten us, like he has abandoned us. They felt invisible. They felt forgotten. They felt as if God God didn't care. In verse 27, they're complaining that it feels like their ways are hidden from the Lord. They're angry that God has disregarded them. The first grievance is that God doesn't see what's going on in their lives. And the second is that he never answers their prayers. And at that point, God meets them with a question. Often we find ourselves just listening to our emotions. 
we listen to our feelings and we just assume that our feelings are right. But he asks some questions of our feelings. Our feelings are something that can be listened to, but we should be able to ask some tough questions of our feelings and see where they're pointing. Sometimes our feelings are based in things that just aren't true in things that need to be corrected, in in things that need to be changed in how we are thinking. And so this passage gives us a series of questions to ask at Christmas when it feels like no one cares. The first question is this, is it because you haven't heard? At Christmas, particularly Christmas in Canada, Elf on a Shelf, Eggnog, Reindeer, you name it, we have a whole host of things that can cloud and get in the way of us really seeing and experiencing what Christmas is all about. If you're feeling like no one cares this Christmas, one of the questions to ask is, is it because you haven't heard? In verse 28, we hear the questions. Have you not known? Have you not heard? And then we hear a series of statements about this great, powerful God. And there are a series of statements that the people should have known. The people should have heard. And yet, as you know, and as I know, in the midst of the busyness of life and of all of the messages that we are bombarded with, it's possible to to not know things that we ought to know, to not have heard things that we ought to have heard. In this case, some important things about God. So let's look at some of the things that are revealed here. First, Christmas reveals a powerful Savior. In verse 28, he's announced as the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This is a kind of God who isn't blind. The kind of God who just, it's not like he doesn't see things. It's not like he can't notice. It's not possible that he doesn't know what's going on in your life. He goes on to say that he doesn't faint or grow weary. Again, it's a statement of how powerful God is. It's not like he's not able. It's not like he's not up for the job. He's not capable of responding. It's not like God's fallen asleep on the job or too tired to help. Christmas reveals a powerful Savior. But it goes on to reveal an unpredictable Savior. In the end of verse 28, it says his understanding is unsearchable. That means you can never quite figure God out. It means that the way that God thinks and the way that we think is different. He is above us, as was shared in the prayer this morning. His ways are above, of, are above ours. The way he thinks is above ours. His understanding is unthir- unsearchable. Isaiah 55, 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. God doesn't get with our program. He regularly defies expectations. Christmas reveals an unpredictable Savior. The kind of Savior who enters the world through a pregnant virgin into a feeding trough. That's not the kind of God that we would expect. Those aren't the kind of actions that we might have anticipated. Even when he is following carefully prescribed prophecies and a carefully orchestrated plan. His ways are unsearchable. He defies expectations. Christmas also reveals a merciful Savior. Verse 29 says that he gives power to the faint, 
and to him who has no might, he increases strength. The faint here refers to people who have just buckled under life's pressures. Those who have no might are those who just don't have the strength to deal with the things that are coming in front of them. Just don't have the strength. Don't, don't have, have the, the might to deal with all that is coming. Here in particular, it's a road back to the promised land that's in view. The people were sitting in Babylon thinking, I don't know if I have what it takes to make that trip back. I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if I have enough power. I don't know if we have enough resources. I don't know if we'll make it. And it says God gives power to that person. God brings his strength to them because they don't have the strength for themselves. Christmas reveals a merciful Savior. When the Messiah's birth is announced, he's given a name that will encapsulate the great mercy that he shows. In Matthew's Gospel, the angel tells Joseph to call his name Jesus because, for he will save his people from their sins. It's a picture of the greatest need, the greatest sense in which we are without power and without strength, each one of us, in that we all possess sins that have weighed us down and separated us from a good and holy God. We are without power to change that. We are without hope. But Christmas announces a hope of a Savior who comes and rescues With Christmas announcing such a powerful, unpredictable, but merciful Savior, why does it seem like no one cares? Examine your feelings. Examine your heart. Is it because you haven't heard? Is it because you need to remind yourself of who this great and amazing God is? So some people feel, feel the sense that no one cares because they haven't heard. But some people have heard and still don't feel it. It still feels like no one cares. They still question God's love. So the next question our passage poses is, is it because you haven't waited? Receiving God's help involves a certain posture towards him, a certain way of relating to him. Have you learned to wait on God? Verses 30 and 31 give a contrast. It says, Even youth shall faint and grow and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall, be, shall renew their strength. Young people have lots of energy. I hear this regularly from Christians. It's the, the, the youth ministry. There is no shortage of uh, energy in our youth. No shortage of energy in our, in our children's uh, ministry. We saw that in the uh, musical presentation. There is lots of energy in the young. But the verse says that natural energy, even that hits a roadblock at some point. At some point, the natural physical energy that we're given runs its course. It meets its ends. It finds its limitation. But it says that they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. These people are given new strength. It actually speaks of an exchange of strength as if 
the natural power that we have that finds itself running out of steam, hitting the wall and facing its limitations, that kind of strength is replaced as we wait on the Lord for a different kind of strength, a new strength, fresh strength, fresh power from God, divine power from the one who loves us. But we receive it by waiting for the Lord. And I don't need to remind any of you how much we hate to wait for anything, right? Let alone the Lord. Waiting for the Lord involves a number of things. It involves trust, first of all. It involves trust because it involves putting your hope in the Lord, not in yourself. When I wait for someone, I am trusting that they're the one that's going to deliver here. They're the one that is going to bring the help that I need. When I wait on the Lord, I put my trust in him. It's a big part of the Christmas story. Mary is given this incredible, impossible, seemingly, uh, assignment. An assignment that will involve humiliation, misunderstanding, great difficulty. And she gives that famous reply, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She chose to wait on the Lord. She chose to trust in God's plan. She trusted that God would sort things out. She believed that God knew what he was doing even when life seemed impossibly difficult. That's something of what it means to wait on the Lord. We trust in him. But trust, waiting on the Lord also involves obedience. It involves obedience because there's something that happens when we don't get what we want now. It's at that point that we begin to take matters into our own hands, forget what we know to be true about God and his will for our lives, and we feel the urge to compromise. We feel the urge to do things that, had we not been pressed, had we not gotten what we wanted now, had we not been made to wait, we wouldn't feel the power of that temptation nearly so strongly. But having been made to wait, we compromise. We drift. In that moment, we're saying, I'm tired of waiting for the Lord. I think I've got a better idea. People feel that temptation when it, it just, they're made to wait too long for the right person to come along or wait too long for the wedding day to arrive or, or wait too long for the conflict to die down or for the finances to come in or for the situation to resolve itself. In those instances, we are tempted to compromise what we know to be right and true and good and we fail to wait on the Lord. So waiting for the Lord involves trust. It involves obedience. It, it also involves expectation. When we wait for the Lord, we believe he's worth waiting for. We believe that there's something good at the end of all of that waiting. It's not just that we give up and we say, oh, I don't care, I can't figure out God, I don't know what's going on. That, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about waiting for the Lord we are waiting with anticipation. I, I don't understand all of my circumstances. God is unsearchable, but God is powerful. God is merciful. 
I will wait on him because there is great reward in him. There is a, a great uh, joy and, and delight at the end. I can wait with anticipation. I can wait with expectation. There's great hope in Christmas. There's great hope in the Savior who was born for us. There's great hope for those who would wait on the Lord. If it felt like no one cares, could be because you hadn't heard. Could be because you lost the message in the midst of all the other stuff that we get wrapped up in at Christmas. Could be because you just hadn't realized you needed to wait on the Lord. The passage leaves us with one final question for our feelings. Is it because you didn't want to grow? What we need to recognize when we come to the scriptures, God is way more committed to my personal growth and holiness than I am. That's certainly true of me. It must be true of at least some of you. God is way more committed to my personal growth and holiness than I am. If you really don't want to grow, you may misunderstand what God's doing in your life. Verse 31, I want to have you look at it. It's an incredible promise. But watch what it's saying. It says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now the eagle is a symbol of strength. The eagle is the mighty bird, the strong one. The great hunter. If you've ever seen one soar, their flight is effortless. They're majestic creatures. And God is promising great strength, great power for those who would wait on him. But can I be completely honest with you? When I think of the promise here, most days I don't want the power to fly like an eagle. Most days, I want the power to curl up in my nest and not have to fly anywhere. Most days, I'm quite content to cover myself with a few feathers and stay warm. Most days, the idea of flying in the heights above the clouds like like an eagle sounds completely terrifying. It sounds like a realm of operating that is not comfortable, is not usual, it's not part of my norm, it's, it's, it pushes me. And the problem is, if God is so committed to my growth that he wants me to fly like an eagle, he promises me that strength, if he is desperately committed to that program, and if I am desperately committed to the hunkering down and staying warm inside of the nest program, it's going to feel at times like God is trying to kill me. It's going to feel at times like God is at cross purposes with everything that I want to do in my life. Because I like comfortable. I like familiar. I like normal. And it seems like God has a different plan for me. It seems that he wants to push me and to test me. It seems like he wants me to grow. And I fear that sometimes when I resist and I find myself straining against the purposes and the plans of God, 
it's because he's more committed to my growth than I am. He's more committed to seeing me fly like an eagle than I ever possibly could be. But God doesn't promise that you'll always fly either. If you look at the promise in verse 31, there are times when you might want to soar above all your problems. Maybe you're thinking, you know what? This eagle thing, I'm totally into that. If I could just kind of soar above the circumstances of my life, I would love that. But the promise, is, the promise isn't that you'll always do that. Sometimes you'll have to put on your running shoes and just jog through them. Sometimes it says you'll have to walk. And it could seem like a very long, long walk. Remember, Israel is planning to return. The promise is that they would return from captivity in Babylon and return to Israel. That's a long trip. Kind of like to fly rather than walk. Thank you very much. Not sure the sandals will hold up. And, and so it's a recognition that there can be different ways and different purposes, different means that God would use in our lives. What God does promise, though, is his divine strength. Verse 29 says he gives power to the faint. Verse 31 promises that those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. God does promise his great power to us. God really does give us wings like eagles. He really does help us to run without wearying, to walk without fainting. It's a great promise. When the author Nabil Qureshi put his trust in Jesus, there were a lot of people around him that had a lot of questions for him. A lot of people that questioned why he had decided to follow Jesus Christ. A lot of people had questions for him about things like Christmas. One of them was a Muslim friend of his named Sahar. Sahar struggled with the message of Christmas because... From a, a, a perspective of honor, it just seemed beneath God. One day she asked Nabil, how can you believe Jesus is God if he was born through the birth canal of a woman and had to use the bathroom? Aren't those things beneath God? It, it doesn't seem appropriate for a God who is glorious, majestic. And Qureshi responded with a, a question of his own. He said, Sahar, let's say you're on your way to a very important ceremony and you are dressed in your very finest clothes and you're about to arrive just on time and you're rushing on your way there. But on your way, you see your daughter and she's drowning in some mud. Would you say, I'm running running late, got to be on time, I'm dressed too well, this would be beneath my dignity, I will keep moving. And her response was, of course, I would jump in the mud and save her. It's my daughter. Koreshi then asked her another question. He said, if you being human love your daughter so much that you are willing to lay aside your dignity to save her, how much more can we expect God if he is our loving, loving father to lay aside his message, to lay aside his majesty to save us. 
Sahar was touched by the message of a God who was great in majesty, great in power, but whose ways were unsearchable in that he was willing to lay aside that majesty, willing to lay it aside in love to come into the mud of our lives to rescue us. And that's what we gather to celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate a God who loves us so much that he lays aside his majesty. He came into this world as a baby so that we would, he would experience all that we experience. So he could live the life that we haven't lived. He faced rejection for us. He faced poverty for us. And he did that so that we would never feel alone. So we would know that there was one who understands. His name is Jesus because he forgives people of their sins. He provides a rescue. He provides salvation. In him we find the powerful, unpredictable, and merciful Savior that Isaiah promised would come and finally did. At Christmas, he invites us to do what we tell our children to do every Christmas. He invites us to wait. We wait on Jesus by putting our trust in him. We trust him with our salvation. We trust him with our life. We trust him with our circumstances. We trust that he knows what he's doing even when life's tough. We wait on Jesus even when we're tempted to compromise. We wait on Jesus even when it feels like his way is going to take an awful long time and we think that we might know better. And finally, we wait on Jesus with expectation. We wait on Jesus the way a child does at Christmas. A child waits with expectation. A child waits with the knowledge that it'll be worth the wait. We wait with expectation as we wait on our Lord because we know of his goodness. We know of his great reward for those who would wait on him. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would minister your powerful hope this morning. For anyone entering Christmas feeling discouraged and alone, Show them how much you care. Fill us with your strength. Give us your power. Help us to wait on you. And thank you for the amazing gift of Christmas. Thank you for your great gift of love. In Jesus' name, amen.